0: Welcome to another instalment of the Mojo Innovators Podcast. This week with me, Mojo Senior Editor Danny Eccleston. Before the Beatles, pop singers and rock and roll artists had a simple job to entertain. After the Beatles, fans and listeners were bequeathed radically raised expectations of the musician's role and range of responsibilities. We looked to them as creators of art, explorers of life, bellwethers of culture. And woe betide those who did not progress, providing a new canvas of ideas and sounds with every release. This was almost completely the legacy of four young men from Liverpool and their talented production team, the creative environment they fostered and turned into pop records. We're going to look more closely at three of those records, three key phases of Beatle innovation. First, the Beatles' third full album in British money their first movie soundtrack and more, A Hard Day's Night. Second, the quartet's psychedelic flowering in what some have called the greatest year of the 20th century, 1966's Revolver album. And thirdly, the last album they made and the cover star of the latest Mojo magazine, out in the UK from Tuesday, August the 20th, Abbey Road. And helping us, put these landmarks under the microscope are Mojo's own Sexy Sadie and Mean Mr. Bustard. I'll leave you to decide which is which. Mojo Special Editions editor Pat Gilbert. Hello, Pat. How do you do? And founding Mojo Features editor, long-time contributor and noted songwriter Jim Irvin. Hello, Danny. So, the first Beetle Watershed we're revisiting is A Hard Day's Night. Released on June 26, 1964 in the UK and July the 10th in the US, it's the music from their first movie.
1: But in what other respects is it a first? Jim. The thing to remember about this uh, whole project that the film was commissioned by an American company at the end of 1963 when they didn't really mean anything in America at all. All United Artists wanted from it was a soundtrack album. What they got was what has been called the Citizen Kane of jukebox movies. They got an incredible piece of work that endures to this day as a as a landmark doorway into the whole of the 1960s and as a piece of music it was innovative because it was the first album entirely written by lennon and mccartney and therefore basically lit the touch paper for for every subsequent band to be their own creators
0: so this is a this is the first fully lennon and mccartney album what kind, what do we start to see in their songwriting around A Hard Day's Night that we haven't really got from their first two records,
2: Pat? Uh, I think you get to see a confidence that they got from Cracking America. When they arrive in America, there's uh, um, amazing uh, The Maisel's Brothers um, footage. And it's, it's very interesting because the film that comes out of A Hard Day's Night, where it's got all the screaming fans sort of banging on the windows, the, the band running down the road and and everything. It's so real, because it was such a kind of real translation um, into um, what the Beatles experienced. I mean, if you remember, at the beginning of 1963, they were playing a tour of Scotland to one man and his dog in these folk clubs. At the end of 1963, they're the biggest band in Britain, and and they're doing numerous nights at the Finsbury Park, um, Astoria. And, and only months later, they break America. So there's this extraordinary acceleration in how important they are as a group. And this, again, bleeds into the songwriting. It's um, They haven't gone deeply psychological at this point. They're mainly love songs, mainly about me and you. But the, the, the music has become... Um, the, the kind of emotion is in the music they've discovered sort of um minor sevenths and minor chords and uh, things like the picardy third resolution i think they're doing this stuff intuitively but i guess the fanfare of that is that first chord that you get the, the dang at the beginning beginning of a hard day's night it's um it's the kind of end of something and it's the beginning of something and that's what hard day's night means as a record I think
1: that chord is like the band bursting through the screen at the cinema isn't it it's this sort of they literally starts with them running down the road and that chord and they're coming towards you and and it looks inevitable Um, Walter Shenson the the producer took his mum to a screening of it you know his elderly mother he's American she's an elderly American woman she had no previous knowledge of the Beatles and she lent across to him and said this movie's gonna do really well because they're having fun they look like they're having fun and she wanted to be with them you know she he said she found them amusing and 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 engaging and this is the moment where the whole world went into agreement about the beatles as kids had just a year before so before then before hard day's night it was just something for the kids and they were they were just over there you know pop band and then after Hard Day's Night, after the movie, everybody agreed that they were fascinating and schoolgirls to presidents had to have an opinion about, about the Beatles from then on.
2: There's, there's something kind of, um, kind of just how extraordinary um, it must have been, because I, I guess we, we weren't there ourselves, but, but Dave Marsh, the uh, American writer, did something for a, a Mojo special edition. And it was about the kind of impact that the Beatles had when they arrived there. And he said, and, and his argument was look, Look, it wasn't like it was a barren wasteland. You know, we had Bob Dylan, Miles Davis, we had the Beach Boys, we mm. had Phil Spector, we had Motown. They had all this wonderful yeah. stuff. And and for the Beatles to arrive on that uh, a stage, that kind of rich in, in musical kind of, you know, greatness, and to sort of trash it all, it was amazing. I mean, it and, and, it, and you know, as Jim, you know, suggests, it was probably due to their personalities as much as music.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, I I think the hardest night is when the Beatles became the conversation. uh, and, And that's the thing. It's the 60s sort of template being laid out in front of you, that they are... They represent this sort of upward mobility for the working class in the media and, and all those things that were being discussed, you know, like kitchen sink drama, Kathy Come Home, all those kind of things. The Beatles represented that. Hard Day's Night, the movie, is, is, looks like that. Alan Owen, who, who did the screenplay, had come from that, that f- theatrical world. And they just look like the future. They're kind of irreverent, they're cheeky, but they're wearing suits. So, <laughs> you know, people can, Everyone, both sides can identify with them, if you like. You know, they're, they're subversive, aren't they, at this stage? Because they're coming from the
0: dominant culture. They're wearing the uh, the disguise or the uniform of the dominant culture. But yeah, they've been
1: Trojan-horsed in by Brian Trojan-horsed Echler,
0: Horsed yeah. in, yeah. And the cord, I think, going back to the cord, the cord seems really kind of significant and symbolic and lots has been written about it, have not they? That, you know, it's been described as a G7 add 9 Sus 4, or somebody else thinks it's a G7 Sus 4, or someone else thinks it's a G11 Sus 4, or it's an F add 9 with some other stuff thrown in. Yeah. I always think that it's if you've ever got up in the night and kicked over an acoustic guitar drunkenly in your bedroom, <laughs> that's the chord it plays. But I think um, the sophistication of that, the fact that it's like wild and a bit avant-garde and it doesn't really make sense but it they do it and they keep it that feels like a point at which the beatles kind of get into art music
1: do yeah. you think that's fair yes and i think that the whole experiment of the of the movie was them stretching their proposition if you like and saying yeah, what can we do with this power that we've been given? When Alan Owen was sent on the road with them, he came back and reported they're just prisoners of their success at this point, and that was something they needed to to break out of. And that's really what the film is about. The whole thing is predicated on this this one rhythm, which is that it starts out really claustrophobic. What's the, the, the line where he says, um, I've seen a, a room and a and a train and a room and a room? Uh, you know, they, they, they're they're showing how little uh, space they had to, to, to operate in. And then at the end of the film, there's the Can't Buy Me Love sequence when they burst out of the, the theatre and run down the fire escape. And that's it. That's the story of the film, in a way. It's just them claustrophobically in their world and how they break out. So it's a film about liberation and freedom and how, in a way, that's where their music had to go. That's what they had to do to get out of that, that prison was create... Because that's the only space they had total freedom in, and in a funny kind of way, it's the same story of the of Yellow Submarine, their other great movie, <laughs> which is starts out in a submarine and then you know they break free in Pepperland. It's the same. It's the same motion. We've touched on the impacts, you know, how the Beatles
0: are perceived through the lens of this movie and and also the album. How does the view of them change because they become something bigger after a hard day's not night, uh, they become something arguably cooler. So you have kind of pretty cool types like uh, the guys that form the birds. Yeah. Um, they go, go and see the movie and they hear the music and they hear like the kind of folk element. They hear the kind of more sophisticated chordal things that are going on in the music and also they see how cool these guys are and it gives them a model for being a rock and roll band. But also, is it is it conceivable that the Beatles and Dylan would have that summit in August 1964 if it hadn't been for a hard day's night and what that
1: adds to the Beatles? Well, I think, like I said, the Beatles became the conversation, didn't they? And if you didn't react to them, you were just going to get trampled. And I think that's, you know, something that Dylan recognised. He could see which way the wind was blowing. And, you know, that's why he had to... Uh, go electric which i think is the one of the big red herrings of of of, of rock i mean he didn't have any choice really and what was it He just played a guitar that was plugged in big deal but it meant that everyone was pointing in the same direction that that was the thing everyone realized that uh, the blue touch paper had been lit and an explosion was was coming i think uh, roger Ebert uh, said um uh, that he, you know, he thought it was a great one of the great musicals ever. It was like Singing in the Rain, and he said, as I sat in that movie, I went in as a preppy kid, and I could feel my hair growing. Uh, you know, I knew I was com- going to come out of the cinema starting to become a beetle. And he said, that's how everybody felt.
0: I think I might have to watch that film again if I it's going to make my hair grow. <laughs> Maybe they
2: could bottle that, and then uh, we could all have some. Um, also, it's worth noting that. If I'm not mistaken, it's kind of one of those last albums, and certainly the Beatles' last albums, where drugs haven't come into the equation. So there's a certain kind of um, psychological innocence to it because they have, their minds haven't been expanded. And, um, and of course, that's all to come.
0: I'm glad Pat mentioned drugs because uh, the <laughs> always <laughs> glad, really do, always I glad either. when Pat mentions drugs. But um, <laughs> I'm glad that Pat mentions drugs because the next stop on the Beatles' journey, which on which at which we've decided to alight, is Revolver, um, in which drugs may play a part. Um, released uh, on August the fifth, nineteen sixty-six, it signalled from the album cover, if nothing else, that the Beatles had changed significantly. So what are the influences that are bearing down on Revolver?
1: Jim? I think this is the first Beatles album that's essentially a collection of solo works, and which is the way they kind of did it from there, from there on. And it's the first record where you feel they're competing amongst themselves, that they're trying anything. The other thing that we mustn't underestimate is the sonic innovation of of Revolver, and and this record marks the arrival of Jeff Emmerich on the scene. He's 21 years old, got a bit to prove, but also is kind of fearless. You know, the previous generation of EMI Studios workers were walking around in suits and lab coats, and he was the first one that felt he could break out of those restrictions and, and deliver what the Beatles wanted. Uh, and on day one, they record Tomorrow and Never Knows. So John comes in and says, oh, I've got this idea, it's a drone, I want to sound like the Dalai Lama on a mountaintop. Jeff Emmerich scratches his head for a bit and says, well, let's try putting your voice through a Leslie, which is the rotating speaker on a Hammond organ. They try it out and it sounds amazing and... Um, you know, Jeff Emmerichs on the on the on the team officially gets the thumbs up from the boys, and then I don't know. After lunch, he close mics the drums and puts them and through a compressor for the sound of tomorrow never knows, and that's another innovation. You know, um, that was happening daily on the recording. Of this record, people were coming in with ideas for sounds. The Beatles themselves were just saying, "Let's try this, let's try that." It's their real freedom record in in that respect. So their their influences are really. Let's do everything. Let's get ahead of of, of the pack, I suppose. Is there also stuff going on in their lives or their experience of the world's
0: changing and that's feeding into um, their songwriting and their kind of uh, conception of what they want to get across? Because there's all this kind of, you know, there's the Eastern elements that George Harrison brings in, uh, but there's also... Paul McCartney's been hanging out with uh, arty types in uh, the swinging London, you know, sort of, and he's kind of come across people like Stockhausen and and uh, Music Concrete, and he's been making these tapes, uh, a bit stoned, in his, like, attic room, and uh, it does feel like they feel like they need to to express their life through this record, which... Probably pop music hasn't really had that kind of idea around it
2: before. No, and that's, that is part of their genius, I think, in that they were able to move on at every stage. Um, not all bands do, but they, they kind of soaked up all these influences. I mean, George were, um, recorded Love You Too, which is, of course, the, the kind of Indian raga, um track on, on the album. And, I mean, he was yet to go to India, and he was yet to be schooled by uh, Ravi Shankar. He hadn't met Shankar yet, had he? No, he, he hadn't met him. So you, see, you need a bit of brass neck, I think, to, to make a kind of uh, an Indian record without, you know, while you're sitting in London. It would be cultural appropriation these days, it, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be allowed. Mm. Mm. And we can't kind of talk about Revolver really without talking about LSD, which by that time uh, even McCartney... Had taken. He kind of put it off for several months uh, after the, the others had first been spiked around uh, their dentist's house or a dentist's house. And um, I suppose once your mind is expanded into psychedelia and you see other other dimensions, um, perhaps you do want to, to kind of um, uh, communicate that experience to someone else. And of course most people hadn't even smoked dope yet. Um, let alone taken kind of lysergic drugs that were, were, which were going to mess with their minds. So the I think Revolver really is that moment where they've, they've grasped the avant-garde without anyone really knowing what the avant-garde was outside a, a relatively small clique in, in London. Their feet hadn't
1: really touched the ground the previous few years, though, with the touring and, and everything they were doing and this was the first year where they had a chance to kind of settle down in their in the milieu in the in the amongst the kind of the the crowd they were hanging out with in in, in London and in the, in the clubs and stuff and uh, and those people like miles and 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 the the avant-garde circles and uh, that they were they were seeing and you see uh, obviously it, like, like you were saying about the experiencing their lives they feel that they can write about like George can write tax man and that kind of thing that they're starting to address the weirdness of their situation that they're paying 97 percent tax or whatever and and they're still just kids from Liverpool and they they are disorientated by this life they've been thrown into and there's that sense of disorientation in this record it's the first one that they come away from the guitar bass drums standard template there's songs based around the piano there's songs based around you know Indian instruments they move away from the the beat group format here to make sense of it all,
2: yeah, I mean, and there's songs sort of based around the bass because McCartney starts playing his Rickenbacker, yeah, and you get the you get Paperback Writer and Rain, which has got to be one of the greatest psychedelic records ever, which was a B-side to Paperback Writer, and McCartney's pushing the bass to the fore. It's becoming a kind of a very kind of weird and uh, quirky and interesting kind of lead instrument in its own right.
1: And that's where Jeff Emmerich decided that he should record it by using a loudspeaker as a microphone so that's how they got the bass sound for Paperback Writer and and Rain was they used a a loudspeaker pressed up against the loudspeaker and it gave it this this fullness that they'd never heard before because McCartney was coming in with Motown Records and saying I want it to sound like James Jameson I want it to sound like this you know why can't I get this bottom end and uh, Emmerich came up
2: with that. Danny has this theory too um, about some of McCartney's uh, love songs uh, on the album, so that um, they're different we talk about For No One.
0: Well, I was thinking about For No One and Eleanor Rigby, not not so much as love songs, um, although they're in this kind of more uh, downbeat mode, you know, they're not rockers. But McCartney's often kind of uh, vilified for being a bit cheesy, but... um, when he's at his best, he has this ability. He is quite. A, he can be quite a literary songwriter, and for no one, I think, is this really interesting, imaginative placing of himself in the kind of mind of the the girl who's leaving the boy, as much as the sadness of the boy who's being left. It's like this is a sad moment, but like this girl's moving on. You know, this is this is what life is like, and and um, Eleanor Rigby often mccartney is described as sentimental but ellen rigby is anything but sentimental it's a it's a sad scenario that he's painting but i mean the key line is no one was saved you know the kind of sense that there's a kind of despair that we kind of are left with at the end of that song which is kind of again not really what we expect of pop music a kind of way that the beatles are saying Pop music can be anything. It can say lots of different things and it doesn't have to have a happy ending.
1: I think Ele- Eleanor Rigby is important because it has that this, this idea of a sad character as a viable subject for a pop song. You see Pink Floyd's Arnold Lane comes out six months later. That kind of storyline starts to come into pop straight away after after Eleanor Rigby. And again, with this record, it's one of the most varied sounding Beatles records it's one of the first where they really go from end to end from kids song to to psychedelic freak out and 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 all points in between so that willingness to just go everywhere also goes into the people and the, and the the tents and the and the and the person that they use in the songs he does it in here there and everywhere as well doesn't he when when uh, he's beside her and he's talking about it from the girl's point of view as well which is interesting i don't know if that's a because he doesn't want to commit his own... He's always been slightly reluctant to commit his own experience to love songs, hasn't he, McCartney?
2: Well, I suppose, I suppose unless it's um, a negative thing, like You Won't See Me or something, which yeah. is kind of more like, You Horrible Woman, You Won't yeah. See Me. And then to, to, to become advanced enough to see stuff from the person who's rejecting you is, I guess that's quite a leap of, of the imagination as a songwriter.
0: Is Revolver also a significant step in
2: uh, towards what
0: we're going to be calling rock? We mentioned that the instrumentation is quite broad, but actually when it does come to guitars, the guitars are extraordinary. You know, they've got this colour and vibrancy and individual character that guitars on Beatles records hadn't really before. No. You know, she said, she said, tax man. Um, and your Bird can sing all these fantastic songs that don't end up on the red and green albums and become almost like beetle nuggets they're the ones where the Beatles are really letting loose on the guitar and I think it's all Paul
1: isn't it? it's Paul on Taxman, it's definitely Paul but on Taxman. it's but
0: it's very much George on she said she said because Paul wasn't even at that session, okay, so yeah, i mean that but they're but they're all digging it they've got the I remember once I went to visit Paul Weller at the Manor Studios in Oxfordshire who's recording his Wildwood album and he said to me, I've got all my Revolver guitars out. And he had, he had a rack of Gibson SG, Epiphone Casino and his Hofner Violin Bass and he was totally taking the guitar sounds of Revolver as being a kind of
2: inspiration note for that record. It, they're not heavy guitars either. I mean, they're not distorted in the, in, as they would become on something like Revolution... I mean, it wasn't kind of rock in that way. But it was sort of
1: it, acid rock, wasn't it? It was but.
2: acid. rock. I mean, I I I lo- I think that's one of the brilliant things about this this record. It, it is brilliant in the fact that it's it's sort of so bright sounding. I, and, and then you have Good Day Sunshine, don't you? And, and got to get you into my life. And there's there's a, there's a there's an sort of undeniable joyousness about it all.
1: In in a strange way, it's a more modern record than Sgt. Pepper. Because I always thought Sgt. Pepper was more sort of. In the sense that, although we think of it as a tremendously modern record, it's got lots of old sounds on it, hasn't it? It's got strings and uh, old organs and 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 because it predated any sort of synthesizers or anything like that, this record, however, feels and maybe it's something to do with with Emmerich. It just feels like they're pushing the the boundaries sonically in a more current way than they did with Pepper, where they'd now knew what their sound was and. They're kind of settled into it and it's it's got a m- more expansive kind of orchestral feel to it, even though there's only an orchestra on Day in the Life or whatever. There's something, yeah, kind of uh, exploratory and experimental and a little bit, yeah, getting stoned out the back and sniggering. Ooh, can we get away with this about this record, which isn't so much there on on, on Pepper, I feel.
0: So... Our final Beatle Watershed is appropriately the last record they made, though not, of course, the last record they released. It's the cover story in the latest edition of Mojo magazine. It's their September 1969 album Abbey Road. Now, can you remind us of the circumstances here? The Beatles are in some disarray, or are they? Pat?
2: The, the, the kind of received wisdom is they were, they'd been in disarray since um, Brian Epstein died uh, in the summer of 1967, and they were kind of traumatised by it. They make Magical Mystery Tour. Then uh, they do the White Album. The White Album sessions were quite fractious. I mean, I think McCartney, you know, used the F word at, at George Martin, which is, you know, would have been inconceivable, you know, a few years before. And then, of course, they start falling apart because um, John meets Yoko at the same time as, um, as Paul gets together with Linda. And I think the mode that they were in uh, when they were making uh, Let It Be and Abbey Road is you can be in a relationship where it's falling apart, yet it becomes the norm, and you kind of accept it as being part of the deal is, is a kind of bargain and somebody might look in and say oh no it's fine Beatles they will, yeah no it's fine nothing nothing's changed but from the inside looking out there's I think there's sort of bitterness and there's kind of rancor uh, settling in um, but by having the Let It Be sessions which um, they did without George Martin it was for you know being filmed in January 1969 kind of ended with George leaving the band and then he comes back together and then they move into happier times to make Abbey Road.
1: Yeah if you look at the diary the the session the two sessions bleed into to each other they're still working on the Let It Be songs when they start recording Abbey Road but the difference is they've invited George Martin back into the room and said and Paul says we want to do it like we've always done it and he says are you sure (laughs) you know do I have final say or whatever And, and they say yeah you know great and uh, for this reason, as, as, as you said, the fact that they are on shaky ground uh, as a unit at that point, um, they really do need someone to to take control. And he rises to the challenge. This is a very this is the most George Martinie of all their records, I think, isn't it? And and he's there's plenty of orchestration on it, and there's plenty of him uh, providing the glue to hold these uh, these songs together.
2: Do you see it as being more canonical? and part of the Beatles' can- canon because George is there. Do you see it more than, than Let It Be? It's more cohesive than Let It Be,
1: obviously, because Let It Be, they had no idea <laughs> what they were doing. But it, it, it it's also a very disparate recording in some ways. Side one is a f- very strange combination of songs, in my opinion, and side two is a bunch of scraps expertly pulled together. It, it shouldn't have worked in some in some respects, but that sense of okay, lads, one last take around the barn for one last turn um they're all working together, they're all trying to make the best of a of a bad situation um for one last go and and it and it it, it works it's
2: but but I find kind of George's presence on there because he steps up to the to the plate as a yeah. songwriter and i you know and I think that has a w- adds a weird kind of dynamic to the whole thing but he that his songs begin to make McCartney's look. Less brilliant. Yeah. And, and then John's stuff kind of slightly bitter. And I think that kind of ray of, of kind of spiritual light that um, George brings to it imbalances it that's how i feel when i hear it when they were interviewed after the
1: uh, or when the album was about to to come out um i think both paul and john say that they think something is their favorite song on the on the record they all agreed and that's why they released it as a single because they all thought it was a, a, a great piece of work that maybe their other stuff didn't come close to i mean we talked about this danny when we went to hear the album for this for this mojo piece um there is a strange atmosphere about Side One, isn't there, with, with Maxwell Silverhammer, the psychotic children's song. that <laughs> You can't believe McCartney w- w- would have even sort of sanctioned that a, a, a couple of years before, would have thought it worth pursuing, but he seemed to think it was a hit single and kept doggedly getting them to record it. And they hated it, and Lennon wasn't there. That's the other thing to remember. This, while this happened, Lennon had this car crash, uh, he was in Scotland and he had this quite serious car crash. He was quite badly injured. Yoko was also injured. And, of course, she's lying in bed in the studio for a lot of Abbey Road, actually in the room. Uh, that must have sort of uh, made <laughs> a difference to the atmosphere. And there's a part of Lennon that has, just, has gone, oh, do I do I want to die for this? I don't know. He's, he's divorced himself from the situation uh, increasingly as this record goes on but you do sense there's this one last time engine to the way they're they're putting the thing together.
0: We talked a bit about, you know, what's new here. One of the things that's new is George Harrison being brilliant um, as opposed to just really, really good. But there's another sense in which Abbey Road feels like how music's going to go over the next, you know, five years, certainly. There are these kind of pre-sentiments of progressive rock and kind of 70s soft rock. It sounds very different from previous Beatles records, sonically, just in terms of its timbre.
1: What's different about it in that respect? It's the first Beatles album entirely recorded on eight tracks, which makes a, a lot of difference. They had more tracks to play with, and they had to do less sort of bouncing down and, and making room for other things as they had in the past with 4-track, which made the music quirky along uh, back in the day. But by having more room to, to, to put stuff down, it sort of smooths the sound out a little bit. Um, they're also addressing stuff that's out there. You know, Crosby, Stills and Nash had happened. There's other things going on that are beginning to... Uh, impact on the culture, um, you know the band and 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 things they'd have been aware of by now. Fleetwood Mac seems to and be in Fleet, there. Fleetwood Mac is a big influence on Sun King. They more or less rip off Albatross for, or John more or less rips off Albatross for that. So.
2: We we talk about the Beatles as innovators, but they're great copyists as well. Didn't, was it those sessions where George shouts "Kick out the jams"? At the That's right. A, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're listening to the MC5 as well. Which yeah. is an astonishing thing. And we really we forget thing. we
1: forget that that they're they're avid consumers as well as as as, as innovators. And in fact, one could argue that the Beatles' uh, innovations—it's not so much that they do things first; it's that they just do things in front of more listeners than anybody else so when the beatles do something it's in front of the whole world who then adopt it
2: um i suppose one of the things that made the beatles the beatles is when they did do things they did it kind of better than than a lot of people and i'm thinking like you know she's so heavy it's it's such a just a just such a kind of mind-blowing heavy piece of of kind of rock music with those sort of arpeggios going up i mean it's it's just it, it's stirring and you think, "Wow, yeah, you know they're doing polythene Pam, you know, just sort of throwaway stuff, but they can do something with that kind of gravitas at that stage of the game, you think well that that's what they did, you know they and they it sort of better. sounded
1: heavier than. Led Zeppelin sounded at the same time, didn't yeah, it? With more guitars yeah, on it for yeah, a start. Yeah. That was a real revelation to us, Danny, when we heard it at, at Abbey Road and heard the, the extra tracks and stuff, was the the Billy Preston uh, component to uh, I Want You, She's So Heavy, which I hadn't realised before. He's playing all the way through that track, but he played originally, on the original take, he played a solo, a very long solo at the end, wow. um, which was removed. And that's the sort of genius decision, if you like, if you've got a great kind of bluesy solo going on and John Lennon at one point went, no let's not have that, let's just have the churning guitars. That's the real innovation there, isn't it? Let's not have any distraction from this wall of sound we've created let's just have the wall (laughs) we're just building this wall in front of the listener and then adding that white noise on on the synth at at the end, so it's like sort of um, uh, you know uh, um, solar wind coming in at the end of the song They've
0: doubled down, haven't they, on what's peculiar and disturbing about that track and so and then then they stop it stops dead yeah. you know there's no fade out it's just cut yeah. and that's another it leaves you floating in space and and you're right that's one of those things that's a decision that it you imagine only the beatles would make with that kind of confidence to go no this would be the cool thing to do that would be the naff old thing that everyone else has done jim you've heard this version, what, what can Beatles fans look forward to from the new edition?
1: Charles Martin's stated intent on this record is that because in a way it's the cleanest of all the Beatles records, um, was not to improve it necessarily. It's felt pretty finished, the stereo's pretty good, but to make it as you remember it, but just sounding better. So you, you're basically going to hear the album just gently kind of expanded It's not going to kind of blow your mind with its novelty or its newness, nothing in there that you've never heard before, but just things that you know and the kind of quirky balances and things that you remember are all still there, but certain aspects have been recreated in ways that you probably assumed they were there already, so things that you probably always thought were in stereo, like the shoop sound in Come Together going across the stereo, but it didn't actually do that. Now it does. Things like that. And if
0: you've got 40 or more speakers in your front room, which of course everyone does, then there's a
1: Dolby Atmos mix as well, isn't there? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, th- technically you can if you've got one of these systems or you can access one of these systems where the speakers go above your head and and 360 degrees around you. Um you can now sit right in the middle of Abbey Road and uh, and as if you're on the zebra crossing and the the band running over you.
0: Does Abbey Road deserve to be the closing chapter of the Beatles' recording story? Is it one of their best records?
2: For me, not. But, I, you know, you have to think about historical inevitability and just think about, you know, life and, and stuff. It, it, it was what it was. And, and, um, and there's some really good bits in there. And as we've said, it kind of it left... Sort of suggestions for what other people might want to do in the seventies, you know, polythene pal, a bit of punk, and you know the, those those clustered harmony clusters you know, with uh, the 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 kind of um, prefigure soft rock and or, or and or Californian kind of rock, and I I, I don't know, it, it is what it is. Some of it's really good, some of it's not so good.
1: It's definitely a half great record for me. Side one is sort of hard to listen to. Side two is a is a, is a sort of unalloyed joy and definitely feeling like the end of something. The 60s came to a close in the last notes of this record.
0: Well, I'm afraid that on that final ringing G7 Sus 4, it's time for us to split up, uh, with slightly less money at stake than the Beatles, but hopefully less acrimony. Good night to Their Majesties, Jim Irvin and Pat Gilbert, who returned to their solo careers, and to you, the listener, for listening.
1: And goodbye to Yoko in the corner in the bed there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe. And keep an eye out for Mojo's special Abbey Road edition in the shops now-ish and for future Mojo podcasts. The producer was Simon Barnard. I was Danny Eccleston. Thanks for joining us.